HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant. Learn more at KermitLynch.com. This week on Meet and 3, we celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month with an episode about memory. I've always read and sort of approached cookbooks for more than the recipes. To me, they are full of narrative content and narrative value. So malama'aina basically means to take care of the land. For us as Hawaiians, it's taking care of our older sibling. But I do remember like definitely feeling like self-conscious about it, like being the only one who kind of wasn't eating a sandwich and like didn't have a bag of goldfish or Lunchables. Listen to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Washington Post food writer, Daniela Galarza. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Daniela about what we've been cooking during the pandemic, what we'll be eating post-pandemic, and we'll hear Daniela's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Now, lately on the show, we've been covering some pretty serious subjects. So much has rocked the food world in the last year and a half, would only be natural. But today, we're going to focus more on the food, what we've been cooking during the pandemic, and how we've been adapting, and what we're craving as things open up. Julia was all about the pleasure, power, and passion of sharing kitchen knowledge, This led to one of her main missions, to make cooking more accessible. Her goal was to motivate people to get into their kitchens and give it a go. Julia said, Cooking is not a particularly difficult art, and the more you cook and learn about cooking, the more sense it makes. But like any art, it requires practice and experience. The most important ingredient you can bring to it is love of cooking for its own sake. Someone who is equally passionate about demystifying the complexities of the kitchen, translating it into something that is much more fun and delicious than hard, is Daniela Galarza. Daniela is a staff writer for the Washington Post's food section, where she writes the pandemic-launched Eat Voraciously newsletter. Trained, just as Julia would recommend any food writer be, Daniela earned her certificate in pastry arts from the International Culinary Center in New York after receiving her bachelor's from Cornell. She then studied pastry and bread making in Paris and central France. After working as a restaurant pastry chef and in product development, she moved to food writing and journalism. Before joining The Post, she was the features editor at Serious Eats, 
a senior editor for Eater.com, and deputy food editor at Los Angeles Magazine. She's also written for the New York Times, New York Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, and Taste Cooking. Daniela joins us today to talk about what we've been eating and cooking during the pandemic and what she thinks we'll want to eat and cook moving forward. Welcome to the podcast, Daniela. Thanks so much for having me, Todd. We're glad you could join us. So before we get into talking about food, just because I think it, it, it sticks so close to, you know, what Julia advocated for and what we advocate for at the foundation in terms of training, I was really curious to ask you about your decision making to go into Food Writer after you did professional um, culinary training? Sure. Yeah, actually, it was it was almost always part of the plan. Um, I studied food history and anthropology, um, food cultural studies at Cornell. That was my undergraduate degree. Um, I focused a lot on writing. Obviously, there's a lot of writing in that field anyway. <laughs> but um, there was also some training in nutrition, um, dietetics, food science, restaurant management. And my idea was that if I wanted to write about this, I really should do it. So while I was in college, I was working part-time in restaurants. And when I graduated, I enrolled in culinary school um, part-time and also um, worked full-time in the restaurant industry. So it was it was always part of the plan, but I didn't know how long I would stay um, working as a pastry chef or in restaurant kitchens in general. And it was after the recession of 2008, um, which, you know, had some similarities to this past year in which a lot of restaurants closed Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of transition in the industry. Something that happens when the economy is not very good is restaurants start looking at what what um, roles they can cut. And pastry chefs are often one of the first. People mm. don't consider dessert essential. I, I fundamentally disagree with that. But, <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> but bakers and, and pastry chefs end up becoming these, these outsourced um, products. And so that felt like a good time for me to transition into what I had been planning on doing, which is writing about food. And so was that something actually you were forced to proactively seek out? It's not like someone came to the restaurant and was like, oh, you seem really articulate. Why don't you come write for me? <laughs> I had a few friends at the time that were telling me, you know, you should you should just start writing about food. And I was really uncertain about it. I, I was I really loved working in restaurants. It was you know, I think it's a fun and exciting job. That said, um, it is hard work. Obviously, it is very physical. It is a lot of long hours. I didn't have um, health benefits. I didn't have paid vacation. Um, You know, even (laughs) I hear your parents pain after all those years at (laughs) Cornell. And you're you're saying to them all those things, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was all on me to pay my student loans to pay um, you know, my, my health insurance, there were many years when I just didn't have health insurance. And at some point it, it seemed that that was not, um, the right path for me moving forward. And, and that's why I started looking into journalism. And tell us about your time in France. How long were you, um, there for? I was there for six months in 2004 and six months in 2006. Um, it was, it was a great experience. It was a real dive into the deep end of, of, you know, the French system of, of training. I worked at a number of really traditional places, um, Georges Blanc, Trois-Gros, Robichon in Paris. And, and they all have these, I mean, I don't actually know if they still do, but at the time I had to be introduced by a chef who knew them or had studied under them um, in writing before I was, you know, and, and, and then basically had to apply in order to be accepted in order to spend a few months there working for free, um, at a couple of the places they had lodging for their interns, for their stagiaires. But, um, in Paris, I had to pay, uh, for my lodging while I was, while I was working there. And it's six days a week. Um, it's 12 hours a day. It's you, you, you learn a lot, but you really learn 
starting at the bottom. One of my first positions there, I started by um, pulling out the enormous mixers from against the wall and scraping all of the stuff under them um, by hand with a with a scraper on the floor. Like you really, you, they really force you to start from the bottom. <laughs> it's a course in humility. <laughs> it is indeed in humility and and in. Um, I mean, and in understanding that there is no small job in a kitchen and there's no, um, you know, you also learn to appreciate all of the people that end up helping you You sort of as you rise through the ranks, you know, you're, you have so much respect for the people that are cleaning and that are doing the dishes because you know exactly how hard that job is. And I think that's, and that was an essential part of, part of the education for sure. Yeah, I'm tr- st- struck by in listening to what you were saying when um, Chef Sarah Moulton talks about when she went to Paris and at Julia's urging to work for French chefs and how, you know, she was chased around the kitchen and, and had a lot of awkward moments. That was many, many years before, sorry, Sarah, many years before you went, Daniela. But I was just curious um you know what that experience was like for you as a woman were you often one of the only female um stagiaires or had things evolved quite a bit by the time you you were there that's a great question um i would say i was still one of uh in in some places i was the only one in some places i was one of two or three um i was often the only american it was very rare that they accepted American women, it seemed at the time. And, you know, despite the fact that I think of kitchens as being pretty close to meritocracies in which, you know, if you work really, really hard, everyone's going to respect you. Um, In France, the difference there is I really felt as though... um, I mean, I was. It was even told to me, like, why are why are you here? Why are you working? Why aren't you getting married and and having children? Um, th- there were comments like that that just kept coming up. Like, do you really think this is for you? Maybe this is not. Um, you know, it especially if I happened to make a mistake, which was, <laughs> you know, as a as a newbie there, of course I made made mistakes, but they were they would really sort of sit you down and say, you know, maybe this isn't for you, and you know, you're you're sitting there, and I'm. Also, as a woman of color, was not fluent in French, um, you know, sort of sitting there like looking at, at all of these French men, like they really make you feel it's it's intimidating. It's intimidating. Um, but I also thought that I could prove them wrong. And that's why I kept going. Yeah, I feel like that's the most common trait of, of people who persevere in those situations. Is that really strong? Like, well... I'm, I'm going to show them. And you, you need that that kind of driver to really overcome that kind of, I mean, it's almost like mental intimidation, whether they're conscious that they're doing it or not. They're, they're, they're waiting to see, are you going to give up easy? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that, that said, I didn't see that, you know, the young French men that were doing the same jobs didn't have that same talking to, you know, they were sort of like pulled aside and said, it's okay, you'll get the next one or it's okay. Um, you know, let me show wow. you something new. Wow. And so there was a stark difference for sure. I don't know. I hope it's changed. I have no idea. I think that, um, you know, I think that there were what what I did really like to see there was that it did seem like there were stagiaires from across the world. Um, I met a number of of young women from Japan and China and and uh, Australia. And, you know, so so it did still seem to be a center of gastronomy in that way. Well, that may be encouraging to hear that it sounds like it was sexist in attitude, but was not a physically intimidating environment where you felt at times unsafe, or maybe you're just leaving that out because it's not something you want to talk about on, <laughs> on air. I, I'm i trying to think. No, I, I don't remember feeling unsafe. I do, I mean, in the restaurant industry, everywhere there is there what at least when I was in it it was a very masculine place and um I think just to get through it you learn to be really kind of tough and gruff and 
um, ignore the comments and, and all of that. That's not to say I think they're excusable. I think they're terrible. But I think that, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that with the light that's being shined on the industry today um, by journalists in my generation and younger, that things are, are hopefully changing for the better. Yes, we hope. And we hope that the moment of, of the thought and focus on change does not suddenly in, in our enthusiasm to get back to it, get get lost in the process. So fingers crossed and we'll keep talking. Hopefully if we just keep talking about it. We'll have to stay front and center. So I want to shift gears and ask you about Eat Voraciously. And I thought sort of ha- helping folks understand your background might also help understand what you're putting into it. So tell us about its creation and what are your goals with the newsletter and, and who, who are you writing for? Sure. And maybe I just want to back up a little bit and say that in between, you know, when I was transitioning away from restaurant work into journalism, I worked as a private chef and that experience actually has has informed my work at the Washington Post. I was hired to write a newsletter. Um, it's called Eat Voraciously. It comes out four times a week, Monday through Thursday. In each issue, you get a short story, a full recipe that's well-tested, and a, a few little links and, and fun things, um, links to music to listen to while you're doing the dishes or something to read to discuss over dinner. And... On Thursdays, so Monday through Wednesday, I refresh a recipe from our archives um, oh. and do a little bit more research on it and talk talk a little bit about it. And then on Thursdays, I uh, release a new recipe that I've developed. And I it uh, the, I'll say the newsletter wasn't my uh, the concept of the newsletter wasn't my idea, but I was sort of given it and then told like run with it. How would you do it? And <laughs> When it, I worked as a pri- it wasn't Joe observing that you had a really healthy appetite and, and thought that you were the right. <laughs> I guess not. No, um, I let's see. I was when I worked as a private chef, um, there was there were a few clients where I worked for a really long time and they just were very busy people and didn't have time to cook. But there were some clients that it seemed like they just needed a little help. They needed almost like the prep work done for them. And then they needed to think about how to put meals together. And that experience really feeds into Eat Voraciously where I'll be refreshing a recipe for, um, let's say, a pan-seared chicken with an antipasti um, salad on the side or a lemony fettuccine or... or um, if I want to say like a like a gochujang honey coated steak seared steak, um, and each recipe obviously will work perfectly, just you know the way it's written. But what I'm trying to give people is all of the ways I think about recipes when I'm cooking for myself. So when I'm cooking at home, I don't often have every single ingredient that I need for a recipe, but I know exactly how what I can pull in and what I can make work. And something that I think a lot of people are thinking about now, in particular, a lot of the subscribers that I hear from, because I get a lot of emails about the newsletter every day, is they they like the idea that you can take almost any meat-based recipe and convert it into something that's vegetarian or, or plant-based. And it's, you know, it's this, it's it's a way of thinking about cooking that I think people that cook a lot don't even realize they do. Um, where, where, you know, like, okay, this recipe is calling for me to make a lemon vinaigrette. I don't have any lemons. You know what? I know I can, I can substitute some white wine vinegar, but I think that a lot of people cooking at home don't automatically do that. And I'm trying to give them those feeders. I'm trying to tell them like, here, here are all the ways you can make this. Here are all the substitutions. If you don't eat onions, you know, like there's, you know, a, a number of people that don't eat onions or garlic. I'm saying when you can leave them out or what you can substitute them with. If you want to make this roasted fish dish or roasted salmon, but you don't have salmon, here's what else you can use. And so that's really what I try to do with the newsletter is is um, empower people to make those decisions um, while they're cooking to make sure they can they can make a meal, they can make a dinner, um, and it might not be exactly what you know, in the photograph, in the newsletter, but it's still going to be dinner. No, I think that's really impressive and helpful about what you're doing. And it, it's in some ways, it's not like rocket science. But honestly, I've never seen it before in the way you're doing it so thoroughly, where 
in, you know, you don't have to read a lot. It doesn't take a lot of time, but you cover all the bases of if you're a vegan, you can do this. And if you don't eat onions and garlic, you can do this. And I think, as you said, it's such a natural thing for people who are experienced at cooking, like I said at the top of the show. But I also think it's so Julia-inspired, which is that's the way cooking becomes more accessible, where it isn't this zero-sum game, and it and it can be flexible and still be successful. And I think I think that's a great approach. Thank you. Yeah, I, I like I like the way you put that. It can be flexible and still successful. So do you ha- now what I didn't know is do you have to subscribe to the Washington Post to get the newsletter or you can't actually just subscribe to the newsletter without being a Post subscriber? Yeah, the, the newsletter is free for anyone. You don't have to be a Post subscriber. Very egalitarian. So <laughs> and, and then I did. Yeah, I was curious just because I, I know you, you basically this is a. I think that's right. It was started during the pandemic. So I was just kind of curious what um, what what is uh, some of the feedback or um, thoughts you have like from readers? It sounds like they have responded to it and reached out. Yeah, it, it started last. Well, actually, it's it, yeah, it started this past February um, when we really didn't know, you know, we knew that the vaccine was coming out, but we really didn't know how fast it would be, you know, the rollout would happen. And we had just been quarantined for almost a year in the United States. The The newsletter happens to reach people outside of the U.S. as well, but um, really focused, you know, as the Washington Post is on the um, readers in the U.S. And it's it was interesting trying to think through something while there was still so much uncertainty in the air. Um, I had this thought that, oh, as soon as restaurants open up, no one's going to cook ever again. And (laughs) (laughs) thank goodness that's not true. Um, You know, I think that as restaurants are opening up now, people are still finding that they enjoy cooking and maybe it's not something they want to do every single night but it is still something they like to do and so that's that's part of it is is I think I'm trying to give people like renew people's energy and enthusiasm for the kitchen even in these waning days of of quarantine even in these waning days of social distancing you know there's there's going to be some you know people people not only want to go out to eat probably to get a break from it but they also want to entertain they miss seeing their friends they miss having people over and so that's that's sort of what I'm thinking about now is how to give people recipes that they can make for small groups or recipes that they can make to take over to friends' houses and enjoy with them. Oh, yeah. No, well, that sounds like a great, great evol- evolution of, of the idea. And that, that's encouraging to hear. Okay, we're going to be right back uh, talking more about cooking and dining out with The Washington Post, Daniela Galarza. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant, an importer, retailer, and wholesaler of fine wine from France and Italy, headquartered in Berkeley, California. In 1972, Kermit Lynch opened a retail shop in Berkeley, California with a $5,000 loan and a bit of gumption. He started with just 35 cases of wine stacked on the floor. Kermit grew his business from a retailer into a wholesaler and a national importer of wines from France and Italy. These wines are produced by small family growers who are committed to the old world traditions and culture. It is Kermit's belief that great wine is made in the vineyard, not the cellar. Much like his close friends, the late food writer Richard Olney and Chez Panisse's founder Alice Waters, Kermit's influence has been enduring. He has spent nearly half a century shining the spotlight on small artisan producers. Learn more at KermitLynch.com. K-E-R-M-I-T-L-Y-N-C-H.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Daniela Galarza, food writer for The Washington Post about pandemic cooking and what we'll be eating in a post-pandemic future. So we were talking about Daniela's Eat Voraciously column in the first part of the show, and I wanted to also ask you, with 
you're planning and you know summer is a great time of year for cooking because an amazing bounty of wonderful food comes into season and comes into our markets and i was just curious what you're looking forward to eating or making or crafting um with summer upon us finally um that's a great question and and i've been enjoying the spring so far and now going into summer i think I think, you know, we all we all look forward to eating what I think are like the three key things. I grew up in outside of Chicago, so the Midwest. Um I think of cherries, um, corn on the cob and ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> those are those are my three favorite things. I guess like water watermelon is in there as well in the really hot August days. But in terms of cooking, I when I have access to a grill I love just throwing everything on the grill. I love um, cooking over fire anytime I can. And corn on the cob is the perfect example of that. But I think you can throw pretty much any food on the grill and it transforms it in a way that is much harder to do um, on the stove in your kitchen. And so it's it's fun to, to watch that transformation, to smell those smells and um, to see how far you can stretch those that that particular technique so um and do you think will we see some ice cream recipes in your column or are you someone who just tends to buy ice cream that you because since there's so many great places that make it <laughs> no i love making ice cream i think um i might write about ice cream this summer i think for the newsletter i'll be what i'm working on now is um a veggie burger that you can throw on the grill that's good for the grill mm. and that's easy to make because I have one that I think is really good made in a pan on the stove but I'd love to create one that that um you know sticks together really well and is also really tender and, and good when it's got a little bit of char on it um wow you're hitting this theme we've got going because we have we've already done two vegetable focused episodes and last week we were talking to chef amanda cohen from dirt candy who's invented this thing called the lecca burger which she says is the the only vegan uh burger that you know stays together when you grill it oh man i see i've been wanting to try that one i didn't realize she was just on the show i love that um i doubt that i can compete with her amanda cohen's a genius but yeah she um, said she's adapted some nine nine hundred year old recipe from buddhist monks you're gonna have to really oh my go God. deep into the post archive for options <laughs> <laughs> maybe i'll just throw on the towel now and give her a call and see what she's doing um no i <laughs> Well, I think one, maybe needs... maybe she can give you like the way to like because I'm sure whatever she does would be, a, if not challenging, time consuming for home cooks. So, yeah, that's really the thing. I think that I I mean I have so much respect for restaurant chefs after working in restaurants because you know exactly how hard that work is um, in terms of labor, but in terms of technique too, it's 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 very time consuming. So let's see, aside from veggie burgers, corn on the cob, grilled vegetables, I mean, certainly it'd be great to do some um, grilled meats or chicken. I grew up with a lot of barbecue chicken, so maybe there'll be some easy barbecue sauces um, that can be slathered on anything that you put on the grill. We'll see. No, I'm a big proponent of that. I think people... um you know, particularly you've been more conscious of sugar contents. And I'm actually from the Midwest too, slightly south of you in Kansas City. So I'm very aware of barbecue sauce. And I find that most store-bought barbecue sauce is way too sweet and is usually full Mm. of corn syrup. And it's actually not that hard to make barbecue sauce. I mean, often you have ketchup as a base, which is I do like Heinz ketchup best, which which is (laughs) processed. But, um, you know, it's not that hard to make... um, make a barbecue sauce yourself it's true it's true and i and i often tell people it's it's something you can make with ingredients in your fridge and pantry i you can start with um you know i mean you can make a really easy one with ketchup and and like worcestershire and sauteed onions and and butter olive oil but you can also I mean, I use like the ends of jam jars sometimes, like I've done one with like the like fig jam and um, tomato paste 
and Worcestershire and so or soy sauce, um, just something to bring out all of those caramely flavors in the meat um, or vegetables. I think once it you want it you want it to have that texture um, that coats everything and sort of glazes it. But I agree with you; they can be very very sweet, and so there's easy ways to cut that sugar. Yeah, no, and, and personalize it. I, I th- this is slightly off topic, but made me think of um, I taught myself to make taught myself from a recipe, not invented it, um, making um, um, enchilada sauce because I can't get that where I live. And someone had sent like in that early pandemic recipe sharing frenzy this enchilada recipe, and I was like, oh, I can make I get almost all the ingredients. But I know I won't be able to find enchilada sauce and anything close to it will be too sweet. And then when I looked it up online, I was like, oh, wow, it's actually not that hard to make at all. And its main ingredient is vegetable stock. Like, mm. Mm-hmm. And so I've had fun doing that. So it's good to have have those challenges. And it's still a little bit time consuming to do the whole thing. So it's maybe not a weeknight meal, but I've enjoyed that. That's great. So can we switch to dining out and what um, it's a whole new day, I think, in Washington, D.C. after what happened in January. And I was just curious in the D.C. metro, like, is are things finally opening up and what's going on in the restaurant scene? What are your observations? Yeah, they've been gradually opening up more and more since the beginning of the year. Um, There's been a lot of outdoor dining, a lot of really elaborate outdoor dining setups um, are still like it's on the sidewalks or sort of out into the street, similar to what's happening in New York. And um, as of last week, restaurants no longer have a capacity limit. And so diners can just mosey up onto a bar, you know, right up to the bar or, or you know, groups of eight can sit at the same table. It's it's all opened up. And so now it's really just sort of a comfort level thing. I think, you know, most restaurants are still having their staff wear masks it's that almost feel you know if the staff is i think it's it's really just sort of what people's comfort level i know a lot of people who are still wearing masks and just aren't comfortable walking around without masks i know a lot of people who are just done with masks and they're ready to move move forward and really trusting the vaccine i know parents of of children who you know the children haven't been vaccinated yet and are still going to school or or not or still staying at home and so there's a lot happening now but in terms of of how restaurants are handling it i would say most of them have their staff wearing masks and are open their you know have opened their doors completely and i think i can't remember if it was kate creator or not but i saw in bloomberg that actually right now the stats although i think it may still change and we haven't really seen the full implications due to all the kind of supportive measures that went in but that only like about 14 percent of restaurants nationwide went out of business versus the like really scary forecast at the beginning i mean do you feel like has the dc area lost a lot of you know kind of staple restaurants or most of the uh, or a good number of the well-known restaurants survived and reopened yeah, I would say a good number survived and reopened. I, I've I've heard that the PPP loans, the pay, paycheck protection loans, um, helped a, a good number of them. The last round of of um, funding helped a you know a great number of them. There were some newer restaurants that didn't qualify for that round and certainly are you know have struggled. I have to, you know, hand it to restaurateurs. They really adapted over the past year. They really, you know, not only did they adapt to whether it was takeout or delivery or, or, you know, trying to work with the delivery apps that took so much of their um, profit or, you know, figured out their own independent delivery situation. You know, they really pivoted very quickly. I know that there, you know, a number of restaurants are trying to reassess sort of what it what it will take to rehire their staff at this point, you know, um, alongside the good news that not too many restaurants went under nationwide. And, and I would include DC in that, um, those figures, I would say that 
restaurateurs are also, you know, they're saying that they're having a hard time finding staff, but I think what it really is is staff are not willing to work for as little as they used to. And I, I sympathize with that. And so I think, um, you know, Amanda Cohen, someone that's, that's come out and talked about this and, and other restaurateurs also have said, you know what, we're going to have to start offering a real living wage, especially in expensive East coast cities and, um, benefits and, and things that, um, you know, I think everyone should have access to. So I hope that no, that's I, a trend. No, I think that's been, I agree. I think that's been underreported of uh, the reasons why the market, it's kind of focused a lot on on just the wage, but it's it's the full package, right? Why should I go back to a demanding job that, that really you have to invest a lot of yourself in um, as a server or kitchen staff? And not get a living wage, not get health insurance, be subject to the whims of tipping, and what in many cases has been a hostile work environment, both from from your boss or the people in the kitchen or the the, the customers and what customers expect. And I think it's certainly making people hesitant to, to, to really evaluate that. And there's not yet been the sea change um, in you know, for instance, getting rid of the two dollar minimum wage, and and I think it, it's tough because I feel like there's been reports where restaurateurs have increased wages and it hasn't changed. You know, they feel like they haven't gotten the response, and I think um, I think that's why. Is that is that what mm-hmm. you, your perception as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in cities where the minimum wage already is fifteen dollars an hour. Um, you know, I think, yeah, it's it's really of a, a cost breakdown of like how much are how much are rents really going for right now, and if they're if they're still as astron- astronomically high as they were before the pandemic, does you know how are any re- how is any restaurant supposed to survive, and why do restaurants why do restaurants have to cut labor in order to survive like that? That feels like the last thing that should be devalued. And so it's not just paying them, but yeah, it, it also is the, the health insurance part of it. I remember one of my first jobs in New York City after college, um, I was working 12 to 16 hour days, six days a week, and I would walk home after work really late at night. I was lucky enough to live, I only lived like 20 blocks away from from work and I collapsed one night on the on the sidewalk because my hips gave out because I couldn't my body physically couldn't stand up anymore and I was in my early 20s um it's not an like it's a job that is very hard on the body and I think at the very least um people should be should should have health insurance no, and I feel like the the thing that's hard for restaurant owners is they're really stuck between a rock and a hard place in terms of structural things that as long as they're competing with other businesses in the restaurant industry that 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 aren't necessarily choosing better practices, it just means the playing field's not level. And even though there are cities with proper living wage ordinances, there's plenty without or plenty of parts of the country. So you've got this really uneven system that you're taking a real risk if you choose to you know make your prices reflect the real cost of doing business ethically when many are choosing not to or feel they can't yeah i think no i i i fully agree with you and and that was something i thought about when i worked in france is that they have national health care and so it wasn't something small business owners had to think about they could pay their workers um, a decent wage and offer them, you know, four weeks of vacation, which still sounds ridiculous to me. But everyone, you know, gets that much vacation every year paid and they could still make ends meet. And, you know, it would be I think in order to level that playing field, we'd need more. We'd need national health care. Yeah, it's funny. You'd think there'd be more support from small business for nationalized healthcare for that very reason to take the cost away. But the the freedom argument seems to win out so much more often. Yeah. Yeah. So switching back to kind of uh, the more fun side of things, are there any um, new favorites or places that you've heard about that are going to open soon in the, in the D.C. area that sound exciting or that you're interested in checking out? 
I think what I'm excited about is watching the evolution of places that I that I've loved or that I that I like um, open and change. And so um, right now I'm thinking about in New York, um, one of my favorite restaurants, Contra, is is reopening, but they're reopening with a different sort of menu. They used to be a prefix restaurant, small sort of five course menu, and now it's a la carte and I think they're doing some other things and, you know, it's, it's, uh, restaurants are really have adapted so much that they're realizing that they can continue to iterate and it keeps it exciting for their diners. It keeps them wanting to come back. Um, in DC, Bad Saint is reopening. They famously were impossible to get into before the pandemic um, and then when they switched to takeout, I think they realized they were serving a whole new desire in their, in their, like in their neighborhood. It, it stopped becoming just a destination restaurant and it became this neighborhood place. Um, La Bodega, the offshoot bakery, I think they're, you know, that's going to keep going. That's going to be, um, become bigger. I'm interested to see how that's going to transform. There were all of these new bakeries that started up over the pandemic on Instagram and, and chocolatiers. And, and I'm curious to see how, if any of them land brick and mortar shops, if they will continue to be, um, you know, Instagram only, if that, if the demand for that will, will continue to work because it certainly works for the bakers and the, and the, and the workers and the owners of those shops. So yeah, that's what I'm looking at now. Great. And um, what do you think, do you, if, if you had your crystal ball out or if you could take it out for just a minute, um, do, do you kind of see that this maybe, ev- it's not an evolution, it's like a return or a movement away from formal fine dining and prefixed and large tasting menus to more casual or flexible food is that something you see or you think they'll still run the whole gamut i'm just kind of like that's my kind of guess that i feel like people are going to be moving a bit away from that kind of formality and chefs and restaurants too but maybe not what what are you thinking or or sensing i think people are yeah i think there's there's a hunger for all of it and i'm I certainly see, like, you know, I think people are, some people are are hungry to go back to the fine dining tasting menu places to really have these blowout meals. And I don't know, remember the days before the pandemic, but that's not, that's not as exciting to me anymore. And I think the reporting on the inside of these restaurants and what happens on the inside of these restaurants and all of the turmoil that staff have gone through in order to make these incredibly elaborate meals. I don't know. All of that is very front of mind for me. And so it's not as exciting for me to go back to them unless I see that they are taking care of their workers, right? Or that they are sort of serving the community in a way that feels equitable. Um, but But there is a wide range of things happening. And I wonder to what extent everything will come back. Um, <laughs> I'm so bad at the crystal ball thing. I think, I no, mean, I, I, guess I, mean, I, I think it, I wonder that too, though, just is, were we not in the suffering phase long enough for it to be a permanent change? I mean, in the, while it felt like forever for most people compared to other horrible tragedies, even the 2008 financial crisis lasted more than 12 months. This is barely a year and a half. And is it really enough of a shock to to get people to change their habits and perceptions longer term. I think I'm maybe a little too cynical and I don't, I don't think so. I think if you don't know anyone in the restaurant industry, if you've never worked in the restaurant industry, if it's just a service industry to you, you don't, um, or, and you don't, you know, read widely enough, you could totally miss all of this. Um, 
No, I agree. I, it worries I, me. I feel like it's incumbent on people like us who have a audience and, and speak to them to, to kind of keep on these themes and not let it slide. Because I think, I mean, it was already brewing before the pandemic with what Amanda Cohen and Danny Meyer were, were leading on in terms of the no tipping model. And, it, you know, but I think unfortunately that got focused on, it was just about no tipping rather than actually no tipping was a commentary on what was wrong with the model, the labor model overall in restaurants. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and what I'm seeing a little bit now is a lot of restaurants going back to tipping because it seems so, it's almost so ingrained in American dining culture that, that people don't know how to think about it, think about dining out without it, which is really unfortunate. Um, but I agree with you. I think the more we talk about it, the more we explain the issues surrounding it, its history, um, and its impact on the people that receive tips, uh, I think hopefully, hopefully that will change. Well, and hopefully it's, um, I think it's most likely going to come from the chef restaurateurs, and I can never say it's chefpreneurs, the, the chefs who also own their restaurants, being more leaders in the innovation. I feel like larger restaurants, there's less incentive to take that kind of stand and position. They're more 100% customer focused, but hopefully we can find mechanisms to support chefs in taking that you know, leadership and innovation and, and, you know, particularly I'm optimistic about the independent restaurant coalition really, um, having been formed and, and, and staying the course and really tackling that as their, their, their main, um, raison d'etre after the pandemic. Certainly. Yes. True. All right. After the break, we're going to hear Daniela's Julia moment. Get in touch, send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Or better yet, you can tweet us at juliachildjcf. Let us know what you think about today's show, or you can share your ideas for future guests. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? Indeed, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Daniela, what's your Julia moment? Well, I think like a lot of people... I remember watching Julia Child on television as a kid, and I remember being um, sort of bewitched by her energy and enthusiasm for cooking and um, her, you know, keep going attitude when something goes wrong in the kitchen. And that certainly helped inspire me to go into uh, writing about food and cooking and going to culinary school. And it was in culinary school that I had my Julia moment. It was in the middle of a class on, I think it was Pat Brise on August 13th, 2004. The oh, two days before Julia's birthday. Two days before Julia's birthday, but it was... During that class that the president of the school got on the speaker and said, it is with our deepest sadness that we are to report that Julia Child has passed away. Yeah. And we were crushed. Um, the school, the students in the school, there were, I think, three classes in session, all sort of gathered together in one classroom and... Some people were crying. There was a lot of just just sadness um, in the air. It was somewhat unexpected, I think, for all of us. But mm. it was there was no doubt that we were all really in awe of her and that she had inspired all of us. And I remember thinking that the fact that it ha- um, that 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 announcement happened while it was in class uh, learning a recipe, I had seen her make on television 
was paradoxically sort of a message to keep going, to really push on um, and to use the energy that she sort of gave all of us throughout her life um, to propel us all forward as, as far as we could go. Oh, that's lovely. I mean, it is. It was was a sad day. I remember. I was actually in France when I got the news, and it it was very. You felt like this light had gone out. But I think you know, having this conversation today, it's her legacy was so wide, and she impacted so many people that have just created thousands of Julias in the world, and that that is a, a very. Um, hopeful things. So yes, thank you very much for sharing that story. Well, and thanks for everyone for joining us today and listening. If you want to join Daniela in eating voraciously, check out her Washington Post home cooking newsletter. We've posted a link in the show notes. To keep up with Daniela, it's at, at G Daniela Galarza on Instagram and Twitter. And it's at Eat Voraciously on Instagram. And Galarza is G-A-L-A-R-Z-A. You don't want to miss the upcoming announcement of the 2021 recipient of the Julia Child Award. So make sure you're following the foundation. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF. And I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. For the latest on this year's Santa Barbara Culinary Experience and the upcoming events, follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>